Hello, listeners, and welcome to the debut episode of the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith and me, Anthony Bruno. Thanks for joining us. We are launching this podcast at a very interesting time, at the peak, basically, of the coronavirus pandemic. So this first episode jumps right into the aftermath of the stay-at-home orders, when unemployment claims reached over 6 million, and businesses worldwide were either forced to uh, close or are dealing with the impact of these closures and the uh, social distancing orders. And basically, almost everyone is in a pretty tough spot as a result. This requires what Matt calls a wartime CEO. This is a mindset for preparing your business for the worst in advance. And if you didn't prepare in advance to realize that it's not too late and that there are steps that any leader can take right now to quickly get into a better position. So with that, let's get right into it. Thanks for listening. Matt, hello. How are you doing today? I'm good, Anthony. It's a rough day, though. You know, today, well, I know that I'm dating this podcast by saying this, but today's a day that uh, just announced unemployment claims are 6.6 million. So a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of businesses are in a really tough spot right now. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about today is, you know, you're in a position of having to deal with these same pressures that these other companies are as well and pretty unprecedented times, obviously. And I think we've heard that phrase. It's almost become a cliche now, unprecedented times. But I'm generally curious, like, you know, as, you know, the CEO who's responsible for not just the financial health of the business, but also the people and everything else, like, how are you dealing with this right now? I mean, just in general. Well, I think the most important thing is you have to have prepped a little bit already for it. You know, actually, I saw this chart this morning showing that most small businesses have less than 30 days of cash buffer. And it's broken actually down by sector from restaurants all the way across you know, to construction firms and you know, technology firms and everybody. And it's frightening to think that, that basically that if things don't go right for 30 days, that the business essentially is in serious trouble. I think that unfortunately is, it's way too common. So clearly from that stat, I mean, like I said, more than half or 30 days, and I think that you know this is an event that you couldn't have prepared for because who would have known exactly that something like this would happen? Who would have known that the, like the government would force you to close your business and you know just be in the position people are in? And yet people should always be thinking about the fact that the rainy days do come. You can't plan for maybe this, but you can give yourself some buffer. And I think that you know it's really important to do that. And if you haven't done it yet. I think the people's instinct is, oh no, you know, it's too late now. And I think that, yeah, in a lot of ways, a lot of the biggest things you can do to put yourself in a better position are now gone. However, the longer you wait, kind of ignoring some of the, the things that are going on, the worse position you're going to find yourself in. So the problem just gets worse the longer you delay. So let me just bring it back. So I think clearly this is a financial issue first. Money, right? Like it's like, okay, revenue's not coming in. That makes it hard to put, you know, payroll essentially going out and that causes all these problems to happen. And if you have a cash buffer, you can kind of withstand at least some months. And what you're saying sounds very similar to what you read all the time about individuals. You don't read it as much as companies, but everyone always says, oh, most people don't have a month worth of emergency funds or something like that. I mean, you see that always. So are those things just sort of related? Is there some sort of broader, I want to say cause to why wouldn't a company or a person have this kind of reserve built up? Is it simply a lack of foresight or is it simply some businesses just naturally require you know, ongoing revenue? Like, I, I don't know how a restaurant, for instance, could achieve what you're saying. Well, you know, the thing is, is that there's always things that you can do as the business owner 
you can make small adjustments along the way that do add up over time. You know, if you run a restaurant owner choosing to buy new kitchen equipment versus used kitchen equipment, for instance, that capital expense early on, when you have plenty of cash, but choosing to spend all of it and having the best equipment today versus sort of working up to that equipment, maybe, you know, that's one, one small change it could have made. You could have made a choices around design issues, essentially, either of the restaurant or of the menu or whatever. Like there's little tiny choices you make along the way. It's the, could be the benefits plan you, you make available for your employees. And I think it's really hard when times are good to not imagine that they continue something like that into the future. But, um, you know, if you've been through any kind of really catastrophic economic event at all, then you are, you know, you usually know I'm going to keep it more like a squirrel kind of act, you know, where you bury a couple of acorns, you know, for the winter. And that's essentially what everybody should be doing is somehow, you know, always having, burying some acorns for the winter because things aren't always bright and shiny. And I think it certainly applies in your personal life and it definitely applies in business. So planning ahead like that makes a lot of sense. And I don't, I got in a little Twitter argument actually with somebody about this who was saying, you know, well, some businesses are capital intensive and, you know, it's not that they made mistakes or that they're greedy, these business owners. And I was like, well, listen, I know they're not greedy. I don't think that at all. Like I'm on the side of entrepreneurs almost always. Right. But to say that you didn't make mistakes, to be in a position where you have a 10-day buffer of cash or a, even a 30-day buffer of cash, I guarantee you most business owners will look at it and go, man, you know, I really shouldn't have done this thing I did a year ago. You know, These small things, it seemed like it was no big deal because times were good. Maybe it was taking on new debt when times were good. Mm-hmm. And now you have to service that debt with debt payments, which then depletes your cash flow. You know, there were mistakes that were made. And ultimately, I think he, he said he agreed, but right. we're at where we're at. We're at where we're at. Exactly. I was just kind of what I'm trying to say, like, you know, we could look backwards all we like now, but let's maybe switch the conversation to what can be, you know, done now. We were in a, I don't know how to term it, but, you know, a much different environment before and that now we're kind of in go time, <laughs> you know, like. Right. Exactly. And the thing is, is, you have to realize that we know a little bit about what's happening or what's going to happen in the future, but we really don't understand how bad it could get. It could get much worse. And this is true of all bad things. You know, Times can get better than we can imagine, and they can get far worse than we can imagine. So it's important to kind of, as soon as possible, like just try and come to terms with the fact that this is the new reality. And now, if you own a business especially, there are a lot of people depending on you. And it's really important that you recognize that responsibility and that you act. And there's one distinction I read about maybe back in 2011 or 2012 from a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by a guy named Ben Horowitz. This distinction I found incredibly useful at probably four times in my life since that point in managing companies. What Ben talks about is he talks about a peacetime CEO and a wartime CEO. And the goal of any great CEO is to be able to do well in both environments. Some people are extremely good in a wartime scenario, and some people are extremely good in a peacetime scenario. And you know, you might have been on a great job, you know, over the last ten years or whatever, running your business, and that was peacetime. And it is now wartime, and something different is required of you. And there are different rules even that apply to you, and kind of the way that you would approach solving problems. A couple of things the way he talks about. It, he says peacetime in business means those times when a company has a large advantage versus the competition in its core market. It's when the market is growing. And in times of peace, the company can focus on expanding the market and reinforcing the company's strengths. So it's like you make investments for the long term, you're thinking further ahead, you say yes to a lot more. In wartime, a company is fending off an imminent existential threat. 
Now, the threat can come from a wide range of sources. It could be a competitor. It could be a change in technology. It could be a macroeconomic change. It could be a pandemic. Okay. You know, it could be something you don't right. expect, but it demands something different of you. And I think, so knowing that distinction is key. I love that, that wartime versus peacetime. Because it's like, to me, that those things come up even, you know, during like peacetime, quote unquote peacetime, there's always those days, there's always those moments of situations where suddenly it's like, okay, we're on it. It might just last a day or two, right. but you got to like get in the gear and do your thing. And then you're kind of, this is a different situation. This is a, it's gone from a skirmish to a global conflict, I guess. Right. Right. So talk to me about that mindset. I think that mindset's really, really important. Like how does, what happens, what goes away, what has to stay, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you shift your thinking? Is it short-term thinking versus long-term thinking? Like explain that part to me. It is definitely short-term thinking with an eye for the long-term. So you can't afford to lose at all when it's war. When it's peace, you can be generous and you can be thoughtful and you can try new things and you can experiment and you can like stick with decisions for a long period of time because you don't want to, you know, ruffle feathers of people and you don't want to upset the corporate policies, you know. But one of the things he says is in peacetime, a CEO knows that proper protocol leads to winning. In a wartime CEO, they violate protocol in order to win. You know, so it's like a complete 180. Like you might have given historically lots of discretion, for instance, to a set of middle managers. It was very effective when the environment was, you know, orderly. But now that not when the environment changes substantially and there's real threat to the business, you might not allow those decisions to be made by that set of people anymore. You might tighten the reins. I'll give you a couple other things that he says about it in the distinction because I think these might be helpful. Okay. He says, peacetime CEO strives to tolerate deviations from the plan when coupled with effort and creativity. A wartime CEO is completely intolerant. A peacetime CEO focuses on the big picture and empowers her people to make detailed decisions. A wartime CEO cares about a speck of dust on a gnat's ass if it interferes with the prime directive. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah this is a great book, actually. It's very entertaining. It's very useful. So just two other things. He says, mm-hmm. peacetime CEO strives for broad-based buy-in. A wartime CEO neither indulges consensus building nor tolerates disagreements. Peacetime CEO sets big, hairy, audacious goals. A wartime CEO is too busy fighting the enemy to read management books written by consultants who have never managed a fruit stand. That last bit sounds like the basis of this podcast in general almost, but uh, that's interesting. Kind of does, yeah. <laughs> kind of does. So what you're saying, what it sounds like is just like um, like when governments declare a state of emergency and it, and it almost becomes like a dictatorship, you know what I mean? It's like, and I don't mean that in a bad way necessarily, right? I'm just saying that like the luxury of democratic buy-in amongst the staff is sort of gone and it's just more like, okay, I'm taking the reins, we're doing it this way. And it's just like, you've got manager who might be used to having some leeway to sort of try things differently. Now they're just basically following marching orders and they're less able to, you know, have, have some discretion. Have some discretion. Thank you. Discretion. Exactly. Yeah. But there's got to be some kind of a line there, right? I mean, maybe not. I don't know. But like, how you got to have a good staff that you rely on in order to get through this too, right? Good uh, lieutenants. Yeah, exactly. And I think lieutenant is a good example. So like, if you actually think about wartime, you think about like a military command structure, right. the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they rely on a set of generals and a set of colonels and all the way down the chain. But the thing is, they don't. it's not that you don't rely on and, and empower the leaders in your organization. It's that the tolerance for distractions, for things that don't matter, for um, deviations from the prime directive, he says here, I think is really the core thing. And I think the mindset is what's really important for a CEO to really step into, though, because they have to realize that you're going to contradict things that you've been saying to everybody for the last X period of time. 
Because as a peacetime CEO, you might have said, no, no, this is the way we do things. This works better. You know, we always act in, in good faith with these things. And you know, if we get burnt a little bit, it'll be okay. You know, like that kind of long-term cultural building stuff is really important to an organization. But in a time like this, you just can't afford it. I mean, the responsibility, again, you have as a business owner running the organization, you know, you have responsibility to your employees and their families, to your customers, to so many more suppliers, so many more people are affected by the decisions you make. And to not step into it and lead properly is a huge mistake. And yes, in doing that, you have to make hard decisions. And those hard decisions are going to are going to impact people's lives. And I think some of the, what you see in these huge upswing in unemployment is that people realizing, you know what, we don't have any business we had yesterday, today. And so we need, in order to save the whole, I have to get rid of, I have to allow parts of it to fail, whether it's projects, whether it's certain employees or whatever, like you have to make those hard choices to preserve the unit essentially. And it sucks, but it's something that you have to do, especially when there's, again, a fundamental change that occurred. This is the biggest example of my life, certainly. Sure. Well, if I were to boil some of what you're saying down into two buckets with one word attached, you know how I like to do that. It's something we're talking about. It's basically a blend of focus and risk, right? You're going to narrow the focus and narrow the risks that you're taking. And when it comes to, and just real quick, the reliance on your lieutenants to go back to that, it's like you're still relying on them, but you're giving them a much clearer direction as to where you want to point them, right? Yes. So whereas they might've had like a, a very wide field of, okay, they still have discretion, but you have discretion within this very narrow direction, which is what you're setting as the general, essentially. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And I mean, you know, it could just be that, you know, you tighten spending around certain things. Could be that you stop, you just abandon projects that made sense a month ago, but no longer make sense today. You know, one of the key things in making this sort of mental transition is that you really got to prepare for the worst because in order to survive, and the number one thing is like, and if you're in a business and you're hit by this, and I think almost every business is going to be affected by this in one way or another, then you don't know how bad it can get. We don't know how long it'll last. And our recent history is not a good example for us to use. Like, well, this is all new territory. It's the unprecedented thing again. Right. So, I mean, it, it drives me nuts as we keep on seeing these examples of like the 1918, you know, pandemic. It's like, that's vaguely interesting because it was also a pandemic, but it's a completely different world, man. We can't even totally, it's almost like a waste of breath to, to make the comparisons, I feel like, to that area. But this is all interesting, but I want to kind of maybe get to more specific things. We started off by talking about essentially having cash on hand, right? Preserving capital a little bit, right? Which is sort of a component of how to prepare for the worst. If you, again, you were kind of past the preparing for the worst part, we're in the worst part now, but- But it could get worse. Okay. You need to get ahead of it. So I think that's one of the key things is that don't assume that this is the bottom of it, that this is where the pain is. You need to try and look toward the horizon a little bit. I mean, our natural tendency is like the things that we, where we can clearly see what will happen. Like we know the work that we have to do today and we can sort of imagine like at a week ahead. And if you imagine all the different factors that are going on in the world, you can kind of imagine like what, again, a week ahead, what it might mean. But your obligation as the leader of an organization is really to try and look to the horizon and at least like imagine what the future might look like a little bit ahead. And if you can do that, it gives you a huge opportunity to be able to put yourself in a position where you can succeed. Now, it's not about even taking advantage of opportunities at this point. It's about trying to make sure that you are in a position to act, like that you have maintained some you know, fighting force still to be able to survive in that environment, whether it's capital or whether it's personnel or whether it's focus or whatever else. Or maybe you can still even, a lot of people now, a friend of mine is a big real estate guy here in Denver, and 
He's like, you know, should I draw down these credit lines I have with the banks? It's already affected his business. He owns hotels, he owns restaurants, no one in the restaurants. He goes, I have these credit lines. Should I draw them down? My advice to him was, yes. Worst case scenario is you pay it back in 30 days and you paid a little interest on it. But maybe they won't make that same capital available to you because they'll reassess the line of credit you have. So there are still things you can do now, probably, no matter what, to strengthen your position so that you have more options as you look forward. And we know the key to all this actually is there's something that came out of World War II, came out of the military Mm -hmm. and uh, was brought into business called scenario planning. And it's uh, scenario planning is, you could also think of it like wargaming. I mean, let's imagine what comes next. So, you know, we know there's a pandemic. Like when I was telling you guys when we first went remote, I was like, yeah, the schools are going to close. Like the schools are all going to close. And I remember when I told my school, my kids' school that, they were like, what is wrong with you? But like, if you just say, okay, well, if this happens, then what we do? What would it mean? It's just a possibility, you know? I mean, you don't know if it's going to happen, but thinking it through logically, okay, so what happens if the people who are renting the homes from me don't pay their mortgage payments? Then what am I going to do? How am I going to respond to that? And like, how is my bank going to respond to me, you know, missing out on my mortgage payments on those properties? And can I get ahead of it in some way? Scenario planning is really useful. And there's lots of, you could just Google scenario planning or how scenario planning works. They have a lot of structure about how you could specifically do it. But the bottom line is, is that you're really looking into, okay, if this happened, then what might that mean? And then from there, given those circumstances at that moment, like what's most likely to happen then? And when you start to do that well, you can see, I mean, people will think that you're psychic, but all you're doing is the, this is logical. You're just like, well, look, schools are obviously going to close. I'd be willing to bet whatever schools will close. So you need to do that for your business and you need to go, okay, so what if things get worse? If you have 30 days of cash only, well, what if revenue gets cut by 50%, then that means you'd have 60 days. And if you have 60 days, do you expect revenue to turn or do you expect to have to cut expenses more? If you expect revenue to turn, what can you do about that right now to make that more likely to happen? If you expect that it's not going to, and you're going to be in another expense cutting mode in another 30 days, then what can you do today to like give that more time? You know, Maybe you can ex- cut expenses earlier on the front end that can get you in a better position to be able to survive until the revenue can come back online. Okay. So if I'm understanding you properly, on that last part particularly, you're saying that, okay, if you think you need to cut expenses. Okay, in 30 days, if I may need to cut expenses, if I had to cut expenses, what would those be? But the third part of that is, and if I really think that's true, just cut those now. Right. Is that right? Is there any reason why this scenario would not be true? So basically what you do is you do scenario planning and you end up coming with a, up with a hypothesis where this feels like this is more likely, the most likely outcome, at least to this point in the horizon, to this point that I can see. This seems like this is more likely. And then you look hard for evidence to disprove it. You're trying to do the opposite of a confirmation bias. You're trying to find evidence that says this is wrong. Like, no, we're not going to close schools. I'm, I was looking for evidence we wouldn't close schools that would might affect it, you know, as you got further down the line. So yeah, I think the biggest thing is it was scenario planning. It gives you, you can get a glimpse of what the future is. And then if you can act now, you put yourself in a position to better succeed for the future. And it might mean cutting costs. It might mean drawing a credit line down. It could mean a whole bunch of different things. Right. Okay. Because that's what I was trying to get at. Like knowing what, where the risks and where the pain might be in the future and preparing for that's one thing in terms of, okay, if this happens, then here's my contingency plan for when that does happen versus not waiting for it to happen, but taking steps now. That's the balance that seems to me to be the hard part to all of this is knowing how much is preparing in advance versus how much is overreacting. And I know that right now the word overreacting almost makes no sense because 
everything that was considered overreaction before is now a logical step. But that just creates so much uncertainty. And, and can you take that too far? Can you do too much? Like, you know, hey, just let's just shut the business. You know what I mean? Like, just like, there's a line to all of that stuff. And that's what I'm trying to understand a little bit more. It might make sense. It might make sense <laughs> to close your business. You might be forced to close it. You might be forced to like go, let's we're gonna pause. I'm going to close the business. I'm not going to pay my rent. I'm going to preserve the capital I have. And I'm going to take care of the people I can. And I'm going to give it three months. And I'm going to come back and try and do it. But I'm not going to burn my capital between now and then fighting a battle of attrition. Okay. If I, if I look at our business, I go, well, we have, we have, we're well capitalized. But like, zero plans to do this. It'd be a terrible idea. But I'm like, well, you could always shut down the business and distribute the capital to the shareholders. That's a possibility. You could do that. I think that our business will survive all this. And I think that there'll be a, maybe even more demand for it than before. Well, as someone who works for you, I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> and that's, sorry, I'm taking a little levity into all this. It's heavy stuff. Yeah, it is. I think the thing is, is you want to have enough buffer because even if you get very good at scenario planning, you could recognize that there's a lot of unknowns. You know, that the unknown unknowns, as Rumsfeld would say. Yeah. It's about having buffer. The whole idea of having 30 days of cash buffer, you know, at least for your business. For an individual, I think having a year was my goal early on, just have a year of my expenses saved, you know, and in cash and not invested, but I could do so I could have that buffer to make good choices. Having buffers is an incredible insurance policy because it you basically expand the choice that you have when you're under pressure. And so by getting ahead of whatever the situation is now, by overreacting now, you're more likely to be ahead of it and then have an expanded choice set later. You know, if the overreaction involves the preservation of assets and capital, then I don't see how it could be an overreaction. If it's an overreaction is the opposite of that, then it seems like it could be a clear mistake. Now, of course, as a business, your capital is not just the money you have in the bank. The real capital of a business, at least most businesses today, is going to be in the people and the team, you know, and the organization itself. And so preserving that, the organization is what's often most important for a business that you know, wants to see the other side of any great difficulty. So we've been talking about like stemming the flow of expenses. Can we maybe talk a little bit about focusing on things that drive revenue during these times? Yeah. Like, I mean, there's offense and defense, I guess. And we've been talking a little bit about defense. And I don't want to end that if there's more points that you need to bring up there. But I also think that there's got to be a little bit of playing offense as well. Yeah, there is playing offense. But, you know, in situations like this, it's particularly difficult because you can always, in any business, spin up a focused marketing campaign and it generate near-term revenue. I mean, almost any business can do that. And some businesses may need to do that. However, in situations like this, it can seem awfully tone deaf. Yes. You know, so you got to be very careful about the long-term consequences of looking exploitive of a situation like this. I mean, there's a, someone I know who you know, was basically selling advice about what businesses should do and stuff like in environments like this. And I mean, it was honestly, it was really offensive to me that he was doing it. First of all, he was getting, he, I don't think he's qualified to really talk about it, honestly, but he was just trying to sell it. And I think it was just wrong. It came off as exploitive, I thought. As a communications guy and what we're doing, like like I truly feel, and this is not about our company, Royalty Exchange, but I truly feel we are in a position to help a lot of people that are affected by this, who are our natural customers anyway. And so I struggle with that all the time. Is like, how do we make sure people understand that this is a resource for you that you could use without sounding like I'm trying to take advantage of the situation? I struggle with that daily. I think you said to be really sensitive to it. I just don't think there's anything you, else you can do. But the thing about a crisis like this, and we've talked, I think we talked about this sort of thing before, is that it is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to distinguish yourself. It's an opportunity to distinguish your firm from other companies that are out there. And 
People will remember when things are tough, people will remember how you behaved. They will remember it. And from a long-term standpoint, it can have really great implications for your business. But more importantly, bad behavior is always remembered. Right. So just being very sensitive you know, to your customers. And you know, maybe what it is is that getting more focused on a very acute problem that you know your customers might be facing and you know, shifting your product a little bit so that it's addressing it, making some concessions along the way. Maybe it's a temporary re- reduction of your fees or something like that. It doesn't always have to be that, but I mean, you just have to put yourself in the head of the customer as you really always do, but now it's really important to make sure that it really does look like you're trying to help them through something that's difficult for them rather than pad your pockets during this difficult time. Totally, totally. So anyway, that was sort of a side opponent to it, but like, you know, getting back to that whole idea of focusing on, you know, the core activities that drive revenue and whatnot, you know, is there anything outside of the communication component of it? Is there something that as someone who's running a business need to be thinking about in that? Or is that just a factor of what we were talking about before, which was that focus, right? Like reduce activity outside of those core areas and double down on the ones that are proven to work. Yeah. I th- well, the only other thing I'll say is you have to be prepared to do things that you were, your business didn't normally do. I saw this example of, well, a lot of restaurants have had to deal with this. They never had carrot takeout before. They were only dine-in. They've had all of a sudden pivot and I think that if they would have just stuck to their guns, they would just, you know, there was no business for them at all. There was really no hope until the government reopened them. So you got to be nimble like that in your business, whether it, maybe it's a construction business and, you know, a lot of the normal like home building has slowed down. But, you know, at the same time, there are definitely some efforts to combat the virus, in particular construction efforts that are being done, you know, whether it be like I saw that at Coachella, that a guy who was planning to provide help with the venues at Coachella use those tents instead to set up a facility for hospital overrun. Right Now, whether he's paid for that or he's volunteering to do that, I don't know, but it's that kind of dynamic activity in the marketplace. You know, people who, who had a distillery and converted it to quickly produce hand sanitizer, there's a couple that have done this actually. They look like heroes for producing a product that people really need today. You know, they don't look like they're exploitive. They look like they're heroes. And when you get in a crisis situation, being nimble enough so that you can do that kind of activity to support your customers is, is always going to be better off. And that kind of comes, I mean, basic of business, right? Supply and demand. Demand's changing. Right. Right. And you have to look at how do you better meet what the new demand is. I mean, the crazy thing is like, I was thinking about this talking to a friend a, a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, you know, your business just might not make any sense now. And it might not for a long time. It doesn't mean there's not something you can do. You have resources and capabilities. And I think, you know, you just, Instead of keeping trying to beat the old drum to do the old thing, you might have to adjust or you might just have to fold up. But the world has changed and being nimble is key. The only other things I want to talk about is just the way you communicate these things internally and externally. I think okay. that's the other thing of a, a wartime CEO. You know, has to be very effective at communicating these things. When there is an existential threat to the business, people are naturally going to be very concerned. And how can you blame them? Your employees might worry about losing their job. They could worry about their status within the organization shifting. There's all kinds of different worries that people could have. And I think that the most important thing that you do is that you assume that the people in the room are adults and you talk to them like they're adults. You tell them what's happening and you tell them what it means based upon what you know and be totally open with the things that you don't know. But I think you have to talk to them like adults. I think that's absolutely critical. You know, some people might default to like over communicating things. And I think that if it's a fast paced, uh, you know, changing environment, then I think that that's might be really important. But the most important thing is to make sure that, you know, people know 
that you know what's happening and that you have a plan for how you're going to handle it. The faith in in the organization and you in that leadership role are really critical to pulling an organization through a difficult time. If they believe in you, people will accept hard choices. They'll accept a complete disruption of their normal work completely. People will volunteer to make sacrifices, you know, as long as they know that they're being told the truth, that there's earnestness and sincerity in trying to pull through and that the leader has the best interests of the organization and the key components of that ecosystem, the employees is part of it. I have two questions there, but really I want to start with, you mentioned before, people concerned about their jobs, and then you said, and then their status within the organization. The first part I get, that's obvious. I don't get the second part, their status. What do you mean by that? And before I start to tee off on anyone who might feel that way, maybe I should understand what you mean. Well, I mean, a lot of organizations do develop sort of political status, you know? And so it's like, if somebody, a middle manager has the authority, budget authority, for instance, and then, and then suddenly you rein that in, as we were talking about earlier, those lieutenants are suddenly now narrow. Okay. People wonder what it means. You know, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm supposedly a vice president. What does it mean if I don't have budget authority? I mean, those things matter to people for some reason, but in a crisis, they don't matter. They don't matter to the organization. They're totally irrelevant. We all have to do what must be done for us to succeed. Right. This is, I think maybe it's just worth exploring for like another minute or two, because it's like, that feels to me like a really selfish reaction. Losing your job is an understandable, what's more than selfish, it's more like survival, right? Like I get like you're concerned for your job, but like your status, your role, you know, your responsibilities, whatever, that feels a little bit more of a selfish thing to me. And tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, is there a component to that that's more legitimate of a response than what I'm thinking? I think it's legitimate when you don't have an, when you're not accurately assessing the gravity of the situation. Like if you assume that things are going to go back to normal in a week or two, then it feels way overdone. It feels like it's a complete overreaction. And it feels like you should fight back against it. And this is why it's so important for the leader to be like, here's what's actually happening. Okay. Like, here's what's happening. And here's what it means for us. And there's a way through this, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to require whatever. I think that that good communication can prevent that. It can keep people from, you know, trying to make sure the pecking order remains in a certain static way, you know? Okay. I guess I understand that. But like my first reaction when you said status was, you know how much you love, I used the word triggered. I mean, it's like, I'm like, screw them. Yeah. Screw their status. We got bigger problems than your feelings. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how I responded to that. And I just want to know if that's. It's natural. I think, I mean, my natural reaction to that is, is exactly the same. However, if I'm looking at it from the leader's perspective, it's their obligation to make it clear that there are really bigger things than that. Okay. That's good to know. So that's the internal communications component. We talked a little bit about the external side of it when we talked about just not looking or not more than just looking, not being exploitative, I guess. But is there anything else that would need to be addressed from the external side, even if it comes to more publicly communicate the internal changes you're making? Like, yeah. I mean, today, since we we're dating ourselves, you know, I think we just saw that, you know, United Airlines got this big, uh, you know, stimulus bailout and they're laying a bunch of people off. So like, there's a way of explaining what you're doing structurally, not just what you're doing from a product standpoint or a service standpoint, but from a company standpoint, like your jobs status and things like that. I despise Oscar Munoz, by the way, the CEO added. <laughs> so terrible. He would do that. Take money and then lay off a bunch of people. It's just file for bankruptcy and they should just... Anyway, so I think those organizations are awful at doing this, to act in that way, to basically put up a front that you know you really need to be bailed out for the benefit of, of the ecosystem. And yet you then take taxpayer money after you paid yourself many, many, many tens of millions of dollars after you've enriched shareholders by buying stock back and then going and acting in this way that, you know, just putting people out like this. I mean, that's, 
that's bad form. Well, no, for I, mean, sure. I, I get it. I don't, want, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. What I'm trying to get at is that you got to internally communicate the changes that are being made. Forget about United for a second. At what point do you have to communicate externally what you're doing? Is it just if you're a public company or like, you know, explain where I might need to think about that as a business owner? I think that for the most part, the internal challenges of an organization, it's not your customer's problem. Your customer and the general public don't give a damn. They care about their own problems and what they're dealing with. So I think really making it public facing doesn't make much sense unless it has a real effect on the customer. You know, it's kind of like in a family, you know, it's like there's family business and then there's not family business. And some of the business, I mean, not that you're into secrets, but there's certain things that I, we might talk about at the dinner table that I don't think are really appropriate for them to be talking to everybody about, you know? So no, you don't air thinking, your dirty laundry. Yeah. I mean, it's just family business because sometimes people use the tidbits of information they make to make broader judgments. And so if, for instance, and not in a pandemic scenario, but like in a normal like crisis that businesses have all the time where they have a, a serious cash flow problem. If you tell public facing your customers and your suppliers that you're in this cash crunch because it's going to affect them in some way, then you know they don't know what you're not telling them. They don't know that you're being totally transparent and that's all it is and it really is a one-time temporary thing and it could forever change their impression of you. Mm-hmm. you know? So unless it is going to impair your relationship with a customer in any substantial way, I think it's important to try and keep that as family business as much as possible. Okay. I just think it's not their problem unless it actually is their problem, in which case, of course, you should tell them. You, know, you should tell them what's going on. But you don't need to explain air necessarily all your dirty laundry Again, because they might want to know about how something might affect them, but they don't need to know about you know your internal accounting systems. Like that's not interesting to people. Okay. Okay. So we've been talking about peacetime versus wartime, right? I think we addressed a number of issues. We, we addressed you know preserving capital and talked about there's still time. There's still time to prepare for the worst and and make some changes now. We talked about the focus, right? The focus on revenue, taking control. I guess that would be the way of putting it. Taking control of risk. And then, you know, communicating what you're doing internally to whatever extent you need to externally. I think that's sort of a summary of what we've been going over. Is there anything else that we need to touch on on this wartime? No, I think this is good. I just want to repeat the one part about scenario planning. Yes. Go watch some YouTube videos on it or something. It's very interesting. The Gates Foundation, just coincidentally, in the fall of last year with Johns Hopkins University, ran a scenario planning event on a global pandemic caused by a coronavirus outbreak in China. They literally did this where they had major pharmaceutical companies, heads of them participating in it, some people from Johns Hopkins and others that were participating in it. And they were it was this forum where they wargamed it. And they said, okay, now we just learned that it is, we have person-to-person transmission, you know? And then like, how do you handle it? And so they, through this large group of people, they actually went through these scenarios and imagined it all. Unfortunately, the people who are actually running things did not do the scenario planning, you know, but like it's people are thinking about this, you know, and I think, you know, you could go and you could listen to something that Bill Gates said, you know, in 2015 talking about this and it's totally foreseeable, you know, so a lot of things are if you're willing to try and lift your head a little bit and look at the horizon and as, as the owner of the company with the obligation you have to so many people constantly reminding yourself to pick up your head and look at the horizon and try and imagine what might be coming so that you can take actions today that make you more able to survive and thrive when that horizon becomes reality. I understand. Let me ask you one last quick question, if I could, which is just, I guess it's more of a personal question, if you don't mind. But like, as someone who's has to take all these steps, not only for the company that you run, but you know, in many cases, you're also doing the same for yourself and your family. It's like an added, I'm always very curious about this. Like, 
you know, I know that as this was kind of coming together, I was planning out how I was going to handle my family's finances, my family's situation, where are we, this and that. And that was incredibly, it was stressful. It's something that you do all the time. But then of course, the heat is ratcheted up on myself. And I'm speaking personally now for a second. Yep. And then I did think for a minute, it's like, okay, I was just thinking about of all the people who are doing that for themselves and their family. And then on top of that, having to do the same thing for their other family, right? Which is their business. And that's where the situation that you're in. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that mindset and that kind of coping with that level of, I guess, you know, it's a stress, basically. I mean, it's not just a stress coping question, but it's just in general, like, you know, you're doing all this stuff for your family and yourself, and you're doing it for your business. Are those separate? Are they the same? Like, how do you work through that? I think they're fundamentally the same. I would think of it as concentric circles, really, you know? So like, there's part of it that is the top priority, maybe. And then it goes beyond that about these sense of responsibilities that you have for things. And it goes, expands really infinitely. Within your sphere of influence, I feel a real sense of responsibility to do what I can. I always have. And I think that this is why I actually love entrepreneurs. And this is the part that entrepreneurs never get a damn spit of credit for. If they get rich, then they're looked at poorly. But most entrepreneurs don't get rich. They don't get rich along the way. But what they all have done is they've chosen to take on the responsibility of somebody else's family. You know, they think about their kids, someone else's kids, making sure that they have a roof over their head and all that. And I think that that's in our highly individualistic society, which I love that part of our society, actually. And our society is not well understood by many. You know, even the people like because of Silicon Valley and these huge successful startups, being an entrepreneur, being a founder, that everybody calls it now being a founder, is like seen as this like something to aspire to for you. You know, and so people like like so I can be on the pedestal and I can have and do the I can make bring things into reality, you know, and I can maybe get rich along the way. And I think the reality of it is just you're picking up a really really heavy rock and putting it on your shoulders and carrying it. And I think that you either are cut out for that or you're not. And I think that certainly I've screwed it up many times, but I think that that's the inclination is to step into responsibility or not to step into responsibility. And the entrepreneurs who survive difficult things are people who are, by default, if you leave them alone in a room or put them in a new place with others for any period of time, they end up picking up more responsibility than is naturally their own. It's not a burden. It's a privilege really to do it, honestly. Just like it's a privilege for you to be a father of your family and to like shepherd them in the best way you can toward security and flourishing and all of those things. Like That's an obligation, but it's an honor. Like It like, gives life its meaning. And I think it just expands beyond that, beyond a family too. Well, I think uh, that's the better place than I need to leave it. So thank you for all of that. And uh, I guess until next time. All right. Thanks, you, Anthony. Take care. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.